Welcome back to Mental Maps. As we know, the transition back into school, whether you're in first grade or you're in high school, it can be such a challenge for so many people. And there's so many unknowns for parents and kids alike. In this episode, I have the opportunity to sit down with school psychologist Angela Letty as we talk all things school transitions, school life, and how to best prepare your child for a great school year. Let's go. Angela, welcome. Hey. Hey. Man, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. I think we've been talking about this discussion for like two years at like every yeah. UT tailgate. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like we haven't like found a way to get it lined up, but now we do. And I thought, you know, as we transition into school and we're moving into a different season of life for so many people, I was like, what a better time for you to come on and just talk about your school psychology work and what you do and what you see. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, first off, you know, for, for our listeners, we're recording this in August in America right now, most of the children are transitioning into school, even into college. We're kind of seeing people go back. And so with that, I would imagine there's a lot of challenges that occur in that. And so for you as a school psychologist in the school, what do you find to be the biggest challenges for all, I mean, we say kids, but let's say from like young kids to like high schoolers to be the biggest transition going back into school? So after being in the field for, I, I, this is my fourth year. So I've seen um, the same kids over and over at all the schools that I'm at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the biggest part of the transition is the new teachers, um, them just getting to know the kids and to know the struggles that they have, the strengths that they have. Um, cause there is kind of like a honeymoon phase whenever you move into like the next school year, the new grade. And so they're, it's hard to show what needs to be done because a lot of the kids come in and they're happy to be at school. They're putting their best foot forward, you know, (laughs) and and, uh, if there are some uh, academic gaps or social gaps, you don't really see them as much at first. And so they kind of have to feel that out as they go. And then a lot of times that's where we come in. If we know there's any concerns or challenges, we kind of reach that up front and be like, hey, so-and-so is dealing with these academic deficits in reading. They might need extra time. They have extra intervention or this kid is struggling with some social issues. This is what we're working on right now in their intervention time, um, just so that they're prepared and they can look out for the issues early on. Um, and then ha- if they have any concerns, we can step in quickly to, to help. That's so interesting. Yeah, and then there's the honeymoon phase that you're talking about. How long do you see the honeymoon phase last? I mean, is it different for age groups or like, what does that look like? I think for the younger kids, well, first, let me say I'm, I get to see a wide variety of age ranges. I have two elementary schools, one high school, and then I also have the alternative school, which is where Mm. um, a lot of the behavior, the problematic behavior kids typically will end up there. Um, and that could look at in a variety of different ways. But um, for elementary school, it usually lasts a little bit longer. Um, I'd say probably a month or two. Okay. High school, 
they're at the point where they don't care and uh <laughs> they just come in who they are and um there there's not as much of a honeymoon phase i guess for the high school kiddos how funny so like you have these young kids that are like looking to impress they're all excited they're back at school whereas exactly. like the high schoolers just kind of like well i don't really want to be here anyways so I'm exactly like, yeah <laughs> and when you say like that's your school what do you mean by that you can kind of explain to people what you do in that role so um in my district we have eight school psychologists and then um we have Oh, I want to say 10 elementary schools, uh, three middle schools, which is fifth grade through eighth grade, and then three high schools, which would be ninth grade through 12th grade. Um, and so all of us kind of the school psychologists, we split different schools. And so we kind of move around the county depending on the needs. And uh, we kind of try to make it even where we have like population wise of mm -hmm. uh, the kids and the the programs that we have at different schools um so yeah i'm at two elementary schools the alternative school and the high school wow okay so you see so i mentioned so many different kids from so many different like backgrounds right like socioeconomically yeah. culturally all these different things just very diverse yeah. so you find that like there's this honeymoon phase you see where you know, that can kind of occur, but then it kind of fades away. What else do you kind of see as a big challenge for like the kid moving back into school? You know, maybe for them just like personally, or maybe for them, you know, with structure, that kind of stuff. It's always hard to move in from, you know, the summer break, just getting back into a routine. Um, we always try to uh, reteach all the school rules, like the first week of school mm -hmm. and make sure we um, just sorry, um, make sure that everyone is following the same like standards and um, they know the expectations going in. Because if a student doesn't know the expectations, then they don't know how to perform or what's expected of them. So they have more kind of free reign to think that they could do whatever they want. <laughs> yeah. So we try to hit the expectations uh, really hard coming in back into school um, for the first the kids that are first there for the first time, like kindergarten or kids that have moved in and things like that, they're hearing it for the first time. But um, for the other ones, it's just reminding them of what the expectations are. Do you find there to be a grade that's like more difficult? Because I know like, you know, when you look at it from like a, a developmental perspective, there's certain grades that are already more challenging, you know, those transitions. Yeah. So what do you find any grades that are just more challenging? Is the transitioning back from summer? Um, I mean, I feel like it's kind of obvious, but kindergarten is always hard because um, yeah. there's a lot of them that have never been in a school before. And so they don't know the expectations. They don't know how school even works, what the transitions are, um, the expectation of sitting in your seat and listening to teacher, those kind of things. Um, but then you have another population of kindergartners that have had preschool as well. And so it, there's a really big divide in kindergarten where mm. you have like half the kids that kind of know what to expect and half the kids that don't. And so we see a lot of um, behavior issues with the not behavior issues, but um, just kids not knowing the expectations coming in seem to have more difficulties transitioning into like a school setting. I can 
That makes a lot of sense. So you are like, you've already kind of adapted to that because it almost seems like we're not really wired to go into those settings. And yeah. so unless you've like been taught that it's very different. So, I mean, it's like, let's say like you're a parent or you're somebody that's kind of transitioning in. How do you transition? Well, like, how do you help a kid, you know, no matter the age range? I mean, of course, first time would be much different, but let's say like, mm-hmm. you know, you're, your middle schoolers, your like, you know, late elementary school, primary school kind of stuff. What would you say is really important ways to like help for your parent or a caregiver? So a lot of times, well, at least all the schools in my district, we have um, like parent teacher nights or mm. different um, summer events and things like that before school starts where they can come and see the school, meet their teacher Um, We have like a 10 o'clock day, which means they come just from eight in the morning to 10 o'clock, like mid morning, and they can come and get their schedule. They can kind of for like the older kids, they can walk around the school and see where their different classes are. Um, Younger kids will get to meet their teacher for the first time and stay in their classroom for, you know, a couple of hours before they're there for a full day. Mm -hmm. Um, I think those are really important. And um, just parents preparing the kid like hey tomorrow is your first day of school this is how it's going to go just talking through it with the kid and and letting them know that it's okay if they don't know what is going to happen the next day there could be some things that they don't know the schedule or there could be a surprise during the day and just letting them know it's okay if they don't know and knowing that there's a safe place like they can always go to the front office or ask their teacher if they're confused about something um I guess just having a open communication, telling the student that there's an open communication between them and the teacher and then a parent and teacher as well. Just keeping that line of communication open too. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like as they get adapted to this structure, it's so important for the parent to kind of be involved and and know who's teaching their kid in the first place and like all these interactions you can have. But then, you know, I think you said something really important that was kind of like the preparation for the kid. I think one of the things that I see in the outpatient clinic is just, how many kids in the summertime, like their sleep schedule just becomes so jacked up Mm -hmm. their, their meal timing becomes so jacked up. And now they're like, you know, and I've been there. I mean, I'm sure you're there too. Like a teenager, (laughs) like you're staying up to like two in the morning playing video games or hanging with your friends. Like, would you say there's like a specific time frame or something you found is helpful for like moving a, a kid from like staying up all night, eating junk food during the day, watching TV, running around with their friends to now being in this structured setting? I always recommend that parents start having their kid at least wake up when they're going to be expected to for school, at least like a week early, just so Mm. they can get used to it. Cause it could be a shock to your system (laughs) if you're not used to it. And um, that kind of prepares them for like the week coming up. And then if they're tired that first week, when they come home, let them take a nap or rest. Um, Cause usually there's not any, homework or any expectations that they're needing to get something done or turned in that first week of school. Um, so just having rest time at home too, I think helps a lot. Yeah. So that, that ability just to like decompress, you know, for some kids it's like running around and go crazy, but for others, it may be right off the bat, kind of taking a nap and that kind of stuff. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Okay. So let's say like, you know, like you're transitioning in, you know, you've done these things, you're, you're on a good sleep schedule here now. Like what are things that you see that are a challenge for the kid at school? Is it that like 
they find themselves, you know, just struggling to, to maintain the consistency all day? Is it more of just the changes of the daily schedule and how different that is compared to just hanging out at home? What does that look like for the kid? I think at least here in our district, we do a really good job of trying to um, be consistent, I guess, like throughout the grades, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And so like if they're transitioning from like third grade to fourth grade, their schedule is kind of similar, a little bit of tweak, like they might have lunch at a different time, they might have recess at a different Mm -hmm. time, but they'll still have their, you know, core instruction for reading and math at some point during the day. And they'll tell them that, um, you know, up front, as soon as they like start their first day of school, what the school schedule is and how it's going to go. Um, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? <laughs> no, you're good. I think, I think you're right on the, like right on the money. I, so. it. I was like, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> you're good. So, you know, you're just in, like, we're kind of talking about within this, you know, this, the structure for the kid. And so like, as a yes. parent, you're, you're, you know, if you're a parent, you're transitioning kids in, you're doing this, but as the kid, you know, there's these challenges. And so they do, they may come home tired and wore down, but it yes. could be because of sleep. But is it because like, it's hard to maintain like focus all day now? Like, is there a transitional period for them just to kind of get used to that setup of now we're eating at a certain time, we're doing things at a certain time, we're having to sit in our seat all day, that kind of stuff. So, and that reminded me of the point that I was getting to, um, Usually the first couple of weeks of school, like academic wise, at least, they will review um, like the big points that they hit from the year before. And so um, during that time, it's it, it's kind of to build confidence because it's like, OK, this isn't new material. This is stuff that I've seen before. And so they kind of ease them into the, I guess, new academic content. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. um, like socially, they would have to adjust to different kids in your class, you know, because if you're with the same cohort or class, you know, for we have 180 days in school, um, you get used to those kids mm-hmm. um, and you feel comfortable around them. But then the next class or like the next school year, you might have different kids in there. And so socially, you kind of have to figure out is do I have friends in here? Where do I fit in? Who are these new people? You know, just normal, um, just finding who your friends are and figuring out where you fit in. Yeah. The social things. Yeah. You know, as the kid kind of goes through, you know, one thing I see, because, you know, in the outpatient world, by the time they get to me, more times than not, things aren't good, right? Like they're either, mm-hmm. you know, mentally unwell, maybe there's some like mood stuff going on, or, you know, now they're worried about like ADHD, focus, concentration, all that stuff. What are like some early symptoms you see in the classroom that's like, okay, something may not be right. Like something's going on. So I think during elementary school years is really where we catch most of the issues, either academically or Um, otherwise um, there is so with my job I do all of the testing for to qualify kids for any kind of special education services Mm -hmm. yeah and so for the younger kids we're really looking for developmental delays so that could be like cognitive adaptive skills Mm -hmm. which is just being able to do simple daily tasks like toileting managing your clothing um, all that kind of stuff Uh, Social, emotional, which which could be just social skills or um, behavior, if there's any behavior difficulties in attention, impulsivity, um, 
motor skills and communication. So we look at all of those areas and compare them to like a typical normed group. And so a lot of times teachers will come to me and be like, hey, I have concerns about this kid. Um, I think they could be exhibiting some delays. And so I will come and um, I might observe the classroom and give her tips if I feel like there's some kids that more of just um, like teaching strategies or like classroom management strategies if I feel like that's needed. Or sometimes we'll move in the direction of an evaluation where they might need some more direct instruction um, if those delays are significant. And um, with those delays, if they do any qualify for any type of services, um, we can help them with academics, uh, speech and language, occupational therapy, physical therapy. Um, we have a lot of good resources here in Putnam County. So yeah, um, clearly. Yeah. So we have a lot of I've I've done a lot of training with my schools um, to just kind of be aware of kid what what a kid would present like if they did have any delays mm -hmm. um and so you can a kid can qualify for a developmental delay up until age seven and so a lot of the elementary schools I've my teachers at least at my schools have kind of been taught to like look for those type of delays and things like yeah. that um for so you feel like a lot of those delays are pretty glaring like in that world yeah like, it's oh like, okay, yeah for sure yeah, there's what about when it comes to like you know, I remember always hearing like the fringe kid or seeing like the kid that's like, you know, it's like, you just don't know, especially when you get on like middle school and you, mm -hmm. you just don't know, like, are there early signs that you're seeing in that world of like, oh man, like this is how I know something may be going on. Um, well, what do you mean by, uh, what'd you say? Let's say like from a perspective of like, there's a chance academics could go awry. Like, you know, yeah. we're not failing yet, you know, because we haven't got those report cards yet. They're we on don't the really bubble. Know. That's what yeah. we say. Yeah. Bubble. Okay. There you <laughs> yeah, go. They're so on the bubble, not the fringe. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you um, see in that? So we, within the last uh, probably about six or seven years um, here in Tennessee, we use a response to intervention uh, model for instruction. And so we all have a different like tiered system. That's what we call it. Um, so any, in the normal tier, we have tier one, which would just be like the normal classroom. Um, about 80 to 85% of kids should be able to be successful within just the normal mm -hmm. tiered instructional time. So that's that um, norm you're talking about. Yes. Okay. So, um, if there's any, and we do different kind of like diagnostic or uh, like screener measures every fall, uh, winter and spring. And so we're constantly, and then there's, we meet every like four and a half weeks um, as a grade level team. And I'm always there too. Um, so if there's any other concerns that might not have been flagged during the, like the screener time, then we can make adjustments if we need to. Um, so if we do have concerns, um, there's different options that we could do. So then this is all within like the general education setting. Um, like if a kid is showing some gaps, um, we can move them to a tier two intervention and there is an intervention time set into the schedule every day. So a tier two intervention would be an extra 30 minutes a day um, of extra support in whatever subject they need help with. It's usually reading or math and we break those down into um, more specific areas. Um, and then so they get intervention every day 
um, for 30 minutes. And if they still aren't making any progress, then there's also a tier three intervention, which would be 45 minutes a day. And it's more intensive mm -hmm. um, and it's in a smaller group setting. So there'll be about two to five kids in that setting. Um, a tier two would probably be about eight to 10 kids in that setting. Um, and then if they go to that point, those areas kind of get the bubble kids, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. We're trying to close the gaps before we refer them for any kind of special education services. But if they do get to that third tier and they still aren't progressing, that's whenever I would come in and do an evaluation to see if there's a learning disability. Um, and we look at um, characteristics of dyslexia as well okay. too during that nice. so you'll find that like you know these kids that are like kind of what you're saying on the bubble you know in your system they'll kind of get tiered in and so sometimes they'll find their way there do you see that like let's say like there wasn't a tier you know maybe you're in a you know because i work in a very rural setting yeah uh, where some of those schools have that and some don't so when you think about it from the perspective of like what that look what that looks like for a kid is it the kid that's like getting in more like behavior trouble? Is it the kid that's like got like some D's and C's and it's just like they're like get unengaged? What do you see for that kid that's like a bubble kid? Um, it does vary. Um, I feel like the older a kid gets, if the gaps are not closed, you will see a lot more behavior difficulties um, because they'll start acting out either they know that they can't do it and so they become like the jokester of the class and they try to avoid uh, attention um to them with their academic work and it's more like social attention because they want to feel successful in something and so if they're oh, getting yeah. attention through being funny or like other kind of social aspects um they'll typically try to pull that attention on them that way to avoid the kids realizing that they might not know what they're doing academically. Yeah. Um, so we see that a lot. Um, avoidance a lot too. Um, just trying not to do the classwork. Um, sometimes kids will copy off of other kids. Um, and then we also have kids that they will present as not knowing what they're doing, but they actually do. Um, and they're, that's a whole different case, but <laughs> so like, so sometimes you're going to like, so almost, you know, what I'm hearing you saying is that like, you're going to have these kids that are the behavior kids. And so it's like, okay, well, like I see it, but then there's like these kids that maybe like kind of doing these behaviors that aren't like, you know, getting to the principal's office every day. You're, you know, mm -hmm. as a parent, you're not getting that letter wrote home all the time, but they're just kind of being the jokester, this is kind of different for them, or maybe that's the role that they're in. Yeah. And so it's not more their personality structure, but it's more of the like bad attention's better than no attention at all. Yeah. And so you'll have that one, but then you'll also have the person that's like beginning to cheat a little bit again or beginning to not do their work a little bit. And so rather than it being like defiance, it's like, oh, this could be a, a thing that something's going on. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Because I mean, I think so many times, right, like in the world of mental health, you know, we'll get these referrals for kids. And it's like, oh, now the kids got like conduct disorder. Now the kids like getting in fights. So now the kids like, you know, unfocused. And so now they need a, a medicine. But you know what I'm hearing you say is like, it could be that there's something else going on. It could be dyslexia. It could be something else that just maybe has been slid under the radar. Maybe they've been in a school system that didn't have that kind of services like you're talking about. Yeah. And now they're in this setting. And it's like, oh, now it's kind of 
we need to do some testing. Yeah. Well, and as the kid gets older, the expectations grow and grow and grow. And so when they're younger, they can mask it a lot better. Um, but they'll at some, I, as far as my experience, the older they get and as the expectations get higher and higher, um, they realize how far below they are compared to other kids. And so it, it does, if you don't intervene early, um, with services or trying to get them extra help in any way that the system allows us to, um, it could end up turning into a whole nother different problem other than just academic. I mean, it, it could stem, like start as an academic issue and then it could grow into something a lot bigger. Yeah. I mean, you're even talking about something, you know, because so many times, like when we, we see kids struggle, it's easy to be like, oh, there's something going on at home. But, you know, it sounds like too, like this can happen and things are at home are fine. There's just like mm-hmm. an academic challenge going on or something happening there. And man, now it's like impacting all the daily functioning of life, especially as it gets yeah. older. You know, for you as a clinician, what's it like kind of being with those that kid that can see like that gap? Like, what does that look like? Like the kid who's like, I know I'm not at this place. Uh, most of them, I, I see like one or two kids. I mean, like one or two different ways that they could go typically, mm-hmm. um, either they just become defeated and they just become, they just have a really low self-esteem and low self-confidence mm-hmm. or they turn into the type of student who just doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so that's as a, what we as see. a caregiver, what do you do with that? Like, let's say you're like talking to that parent, like what happened? Oh, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of times we will try to, cause we don't, we have count, uh, school-based counseling services. And so mm-hmm. we will try to intervene that way. If we feel like we can provide any kind of intervention or support like that. Um, it's, it's hard to, I have a hard time giving parents advice personally, because I know it's their child and like the news that I'm telling them is difficult. And sometimes parents are really willing to do whatever it takes to help their kid. And sometimes they're very um, against anything that we suggest because they feel like their child is perfect. And I'm not Mm. saying that they're not, but um, they, they feel like there's nothing wrong. And so um, we get pushback from some parents in that way as well. I imagine that's like, you know, what, what a huge challenge. You know, I think that's something we see clinically, you know, every stop I've had in every different part of my career of just like, you know, we, you intervene or, or I, inter, you know, you intervene from a school perspective, you know, you know, I intervene from like this mental health perspective as a, you know, as that kind of clinician. And so we just see things really from like the data perspective, many times mm-hmm. the symptomology perspective, or maybe the social perspective. And so it can be like kind of cut and dry in our head, you know, but for the parent, it's not as cut and dry, right. You know, oh, because yeah. there's so much in it. You know, I can't imagine what that's like, but it does, it does sound like that, you know, just masking over some of those early signs can really lead to some really defeating, challenging experiences later on. And then even when you're in that place, you've got to be open to some of these services, because if you're not like, it's just going to get worse. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, those, those challenges, how do you know, you know, from your perspective that the challenges the kid's having 
is like the difference between like the social issues that occur for a kid in school or a teenager in school and then the academic like how do you figure out which one is what um a lot of times it's really hard to tease out because sometimes they go hand in hand um but really we just have to dig into all of the data and all the information mm. that the parents and the teachers are sharing with us because I, even though I come in and do an evaluation, I might not see all of the issues that everyone else is seeing. So I I put a lot of value in uh, like narrative reports that people give me um, just about how they typically are in the classroom, how they are at home. Um, like I'll, I'll do observations in classrooms or, you know, when they're at lunch or recess and trying to see what all the areas of concern are to see if it is just academics or if there is a social piece too. Um, but sometimes when there's a new person in the room, everyone's on their best behavior and you don't get to see oh, yeah. all of the, the challenges that are reported, you know, and so um, i I personally put a lot of value on all of the reports that I get from any kind of teacher, faculty member, and parents as well, because um, they are definitely a very important part of the team too. Man, I think that's so important for like parents to know too, because like you know, I'll get these reports sometimes, and it's like, well, the school psychologist didn't do anything. It's like, well, maybe the kid was just like on the on his really good behavior then. Yeah. Do you find that like kids who are having more social issues or maybe their issues are from a bully, that kind of stuff, are able to mask that better when a person's in, in the classroom compared to if like I'm having these issues academically? I think so, because yeah. if they are not comfortable with the person that's in the room or if they know who I am, because I've been at my schools for years yeah. and so there are a handful of students who know I'm the school psychologist. So whenever I walk in, um they're not gonna be acting up or they're I I walked in one day um and this isn't breaking any confidentiality mm -hmm. or anything but I was uh working with a girl who was having really severe anxiety mm -hmm. and um I walked in her classroom one day and I saw her as soon as I walked in because she was sitting in the front and she was visibly like crying because mm -hmm. she was so anxious and upset about something and she saw me and immediately just set up straight and acted uh -huh. like nothing was wrong. And so it, it's hard to like, you want the kid to be comfortable around you whenever you're working with them, but when they're comfortable around you, they want you to see them at their best too. And so sometimes if they're in like a classroom setting, they might not be as, they might not show the issues that they're showing that have been like reported to me. Does that make yeah. sense? <laughs> you know, it makes a ton of sense. You know, and so when I think about that too, like when you think about a kid who's kind of struggling from like a mental health perspective, maybe there's a lot of like anxiety or sadness and, and that kind of stuff. You know, humans are really good at masking that. And I think kids are even better many times. I think especially mm -hmm. developmentally, like you get to middle school, like there are some kids that are just really good at like yeah. not showing how they're like how they're not doing. So you know, for you as you kind of look at it. Are there like some early warning signs where you're like, this kid may be having like a lot of anxiety or this kid may be depressed before they're like crying in the front room, you know, or is it just like pretty fast in your face? It it typically is not fast in your face. Um, a lot of times there is early warning signs, but 
I feel like people have to be looking to see them, if that makes sense. The yeah. like the what does teacher, that mean to be looking? Like what would that mean? You you have to be aware of what it could look like in the classroom. And and I'm not in the classroom every day, so that would mean like the teachers would have to know um different types of characteristics or um just kind of like a almost like a checklist, if you will, of like different things that could be concerning. Um, and we try to share that with parents and, and teachers too. We have different things that we have here in our district that we'll share with, mm -hmm. uh, with them if they have any concerns about things like that. But um, we also have different like rating scales um, that we could do. Like if the teacher is concerned about something, I could give them, um, it's almost like a like to screen for an issue if there it was something um they can fill it out and then um give it back to me and I could be like okay well this is what you had uh like reported so this is what this means like they this means that they're struggling with potentially they're struggling with anxiety and if that's the case then we could bring the parent in and say these are the things we saw in the classroom um maybe talk to you because I can't diagnose anything mm -hmm. um like yeah. uh like ADHD or anxiety mm -hmm. or anything but I can um give recommendations to the parents if they would like to go speak to someone or yeah. their primary care physician or anything like that yeah okay where do you you know I think one of the things that I see a lot out in like clinic you know is, is the kid that like presents is like the ADHD or the conduct disorder and actually it's really just autism and okay, they find yeah. themselves like in the spectrum. Like, what do you see like in the classroom? I mean, is, is that something that's pretty, you know, because I, I feel like sometimes I'm in like this echo chamber almost, mm -hmm. or like, this is what I see a lot of, like on like certain times in my, in my career. Like, do you find that to be pretty consistent? I have seen a lot of, I, don't, I personally, my personal opinion or a clinical opinion um ADHD and autism can they have a lot of similar characteristics it's really like the core of the disability that's different um so for me whenever we're and a lot of times I have parents come in and they'll say like they have ADHD we think they have autism or they have autism we think they have ADHD and so um I'll kind of like look at that as the in the course of the evaluation. But for me, when we are doing those kind of evals in the system, trying to tease out everything um, at the core of autism, um, it's a social disorder and reciprocal communication disorder. And so I really look at does the student, are they able to engage in those reciprocal conversations? Do they have any type of social skills. Um, I really focus more on like that piece of it. Whereas like ADHD, a student might know what they're supposed to do in a social situation, but they could be so inattentive or hyperactive that they won't do it. Um, if that makes any sense. So like we're autism, they might not know what to do or have the skills to um, have a successful social interaction or be able to maintain friendships. Whereas like a student with ADHD might know what to do, but they might not have the uh, like self-regulation skills in order to do it. 
that makes a ton of sense. You know, and I think that's something that's so important right now. Like you see, what was it last year? There's just that huge push of like the TikTok videos of autism stuff and the TikTok videos of ADHD stuff. And I mean, there was just like a flood, it seemed like clinically of all these, you know, teen and adults who are like, I think I have autism or I think I have ADHD. And, you know, what people forget, I think many times is like what you just said, that autism is that, that reciprocal condition. It's that social condition that comes about it. But then also just because you can't focus doesn't mean you have ADHD, but also doesn't mean you have autism either. I mean, you just yeah. you struggle to stay focused. I mean, do you find a lot? Cause I'm sure by the time they get to you, things are getting kind of, you know, out of control or you're starting to see it get out of control. Yeah. But, you know, I think in, in this, you know, in, in a school setting, you have the kid that's unfocused, you have the kids got those challenges, but really it's not an issue. It's like, maybe there's something going on at home or maybe their diet's really poor, or maybe they're just playing too much stuff. I mean, is that something you see a lot in the school setting? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to, to tease it all out. <laughs> yeah. I imagine so. Yeah. Do you find that like, you know, when you're looking at, at, at these kids, it like, you know, you get that referral from the teacher, you get that parent that calls you and they're like, I don't know what's going on with my kid. They just went from an A student to a C student and they're mad. Like it, for you, is there something that can be like the parents like, oh, this is how I know something's wrong or do they really just need to like deflect or not deflect it, but just transition that type of stuff to you guys? Um. Will you repeat that again? Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. So it's like, um, let's say, you know, you've got a, you know, you've got a kid who's really struggling. You mm -hmm. know, they went from an A student to a D student. Now they're getting like mad and angry and they're having these problems. And the, and the mom's just like, oh my gosh, my kid's got a disorder. My kid's messed up, whatever. Is that some, you know, is there things that they would know and they would see of like, okay, maybe they're not sick. Maybe there's something going on at home that I need to work on. Or is that something only like a clinician can see? Um, it really just depends on how open the parents are with us. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? Because yeah. we we see them, you know, for seven hours a day and we can only help them during that time period. And so um, there, there are times that a parent will come in and say like they're having meltdowns at home, they're doing this, they're doing that. And then we don't see it at all at school. And so at that point, it's not technically impacting um, like any of their academics or educational performance. And so we do have like outside services that we'll refer them out to um, that could partner with them within the home setting to work on those. Um, but we really have to, we have to, unfortunately, because I wish we could help more <laughs> than just yeah. within the school day, but we have to focus on how it impacts them within the school setting. And so uh, there are a lot of times too, where kids will come in with a, a diagnosis of autism or ADHD or um, oppositional defined disorder based off of a evaluation that was done at like Vanderbilt or um, just anywhere locally mm -hmm. and if it's not impacting them at school then there's really no need for any type of extra you know services at oh. school that's really interesting yeah that, that makes a lot of sense so you know just because you and I think that's something that's important for a parent to know too like just because your kid has like this you know quote-unquote disorder that we talk about in like western culture you know through the DSM or whatever we use in healthcare. Does it mean that it's going to be a school problem? 
you mm-hmm. know? And so if, if that school person comes back to you, it's like, Hey, like, I don't see this one. That doesn't mean there's not, nothing wrong with the kid. Definitely. If you see something like reach out, but then yeah. also like, you know, you may not see these things in the school setting, which is yeah. kind of interesting. That's kind of their, their workplace. That's their social place. But some of these things or some of the, I would say things, some of these issues just aren't really seen there. Yeah. Hmm. It's, it can be really interesting because I, and I personally worked with a lot of families who have come in with like an outside medical report and things like that. And we'll always do a, a school evaluation just to see if there is any potential that he would, or he or she would qualify for any type of services. Um, but because we're bound by the department of education, we have to use our like the educational model of standards in order for them to qualify. And it's not saying that we disagree with the diagnosis that's been brought in. It's just that um, there's no need for extra supports and help because it's not really impacting them at school. And that could be um, like looked at again at any time. Like it might not cause a problem when they're in first grade, but maybe in seventh grade, all of a sudden we're seeing a lot of issues because expectations have now grown, um, say like autism, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, in first grade, we might not see a lot of issues with them socially at that time, but and as they grow and mature, um, the expectations, like I said, they just get higher and higher. And mm-hmm. so sometimes we see more of a gap as they age um, than we do whenever they're in the, the younger grades. And I think, you know, I mean, you gave us so much like awesome knowledge today, Angela, but I think that's one of the things like you kind of shared so much is just the expectation is going to grow. And so one early invention is important, but if your parent don't beat yourself up, if your kid's in seventh grade and all of a sudden kind of having these problems, because you may not see it, you may not know, but it also doesn't mean you have a bad kid either. It just means there's something going on. And I think, you know, we see that a lot where you do have these social things, right? Like, the stuff on social media or like, you know, they begin to have depression and anxiety that, you know, maybe genetic. I mean, you never know like what's kind of pushing those like illnesses, mm-hmm. but, you know, always talking with you all, if you're in the school setting and the issues are there, because it very well could be something that is super easily understandable. And it's not like, oh, let's take a medicine or, oh, let's do this or oh, let's do that. Let's just try to figure out what's going on. And then maybe adapt in school and, you know, it's kind of like I, I tell parents a lot, you know, could you imagine going to work every day and just being really bad at your job? You know, I think that's how some kids feel like they go to their school every day and they just feel really bad at it. And I can't imagine like I can't imagine waking up every morning and going to work and like internally, I'm like, I'm not going to get any of my projects done today. I'm not going to get any of this stuff done because I'm just not going to get it done. I can't do it. Yeah. And that reminds me of a, a personal story. My husband, you know, Paul, but um, he has ADHD and he's known since he was a child. His parents were very open with him about having it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, thankfully, he was able to get intervention early with academics and things like that. So it didn't significantly impact him at school, but that's not always the case. Um, but he said, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't know that I had ADHD, if I didn't know that there was something different about me, because he said, I knew I was different and I always felt different and I knew I couldn't focus. And I knew that there was something different about me than everyone else. And just knowing that I had that issue, it helped him be like, okay, this is what's going on with me. He was able to self-advocate for himself. He was able to even check himself, be like, okay, like, 
my ADHD is making me not focus. I need to hone in on things. And so I think it's important too, like if there is an issue to make sure that it's identified and yeah. it shared with everyone that works with a kid. Um, I know a diagnosis is scary to a lot of parents and to all of us. I mean, we no one wants to have a diagnosis of any kind, medical or mental or otherwise, you know, because um, it makes you feel like there's something wrong with you, which is not always the case. But if you know you're dealing with an issue, then you're able to treat it. Yeah. And so I think being open with everyone that's involved, especially the school team, like if there is an outside diagnosis, the school team needs to be aware of that so they can help and provide as many supports as possible. And what a powerful story. Yeah. And I think in, in part of me wonders too, like from a societal perspective, if that's why we kind of found ourselves in a state of everybody thinks they have autism and ADHD, because, you know, for a lot of people, especially like, let's say post pandemic, many people were just like really confused and lost and didn't know. And yeah. so I think for some people, just putting a label on something makes you feel like this is what's wrong with me, or this is why I feel this way, or this is what's going on. And, you know, for it's important to get that testing done or get that evaluation done. Because if you don't, then you're left either just saying you have something which you don't, which is mm -hmm. happening for a lot of people. Yeah. Or you are, you don't get tested and you just don't know. And you're like, well, maybe I'm just broken or weird or, you know, I'm mm -hmm. not good or I'm failing or whatever. So I think it, it kind of goes on both sides, but you know, it kind of goes back to, there's this really great book called the globalization of the American psyche. And it talks about how like in all societies there will be ways that people show that they're unwell and I, and I think that's kind of what you see with these diagnoses is, is mm -hmm. that but then you know if you don't you know if you're having these problems in some of the school setting and you don't reach out to someone like yourself you don't know you don't know if maybe you're just having like a societal problem and mm -hmm. you just don't know what's going on and you're depressed or yeah I have like this I think the, the, the dyslexia thing is so interesting because only the kid knows right and if that's then the whole kid's experience then they don't know in the first place. Like this is what just life is like for them. Yeah. And so are there other disorders that are like that too? Do you find that? Or is it dyslexia is kind of one of those only ones that are really the fly under the radar kind of thing? I think dyslexia specifically, it's way easier to fly under the radar whenever you're younger because a lot of the, you know, like letter reversals and things like that are still age appropriate up until about like second grade. Mm -hmm. And then if they still haven't mastered that, um, then that's when we really start thinking that there's a bigger issue but it, it it honestly is amazing how kids find ways to cope with what they're dealing with um a lot of kids will just follow what everyone else is doing um I've personally seen kids that have an intellectual disability in a typical classroom and it wasn't diagnosed before they started school and they just follow everyone else like they they think that they're rocking it you know <laughs> and they just go in and they're doing what everyone else is doing um but when you really like dig down deep and look up you know their work samples and um you get to work with them you can tell that there's a disconnect there but um it really is amazing the the coping mechanisms that either kids do successfully or they think they're doing <laughs> yeah and I think Man, what a great point that makes too, because 
I think for many parents, I'm not a parent, but I think for many parents, what, what they'll find is like, well, my kid's doing okay, right? Like they're doing okay. They're kind of going along with the flow. Something's not right, but it's okay. And so they just keep letting it go and keep letting it go because yeah. these kids have these just these incredible coping mechanisms and find a way to just to kind of navigate societally. So when you think about it from like what you recommend, are there anything that's like just really important for a parent to do, whether your kid has a, a challenge or not, to just help them get into the school flow and maintain this like in your opinion from like that setting yeah um I know this sounds kind of cliche but just spending time with them building a positive bond and reading with them is a great way to do it um kids that are read to are exposed to so much more knowledge and um just they they typically come into school more prepared if they're in kindergarten and it helps foster relationships with the parents if they're spending that quality time with them and um I think really just having that strong bond at home and trying to foster that mm -hmm. with the kid um I think that's the biggest thing that a parent could do man that's so powerful when you think about like from the, like the middle middle school kid perspective, because at the high school and even maybe the high school kid perspective, yeah. how does that change? You know, because your high schoolers are going to be like, mom, I really want to read a book. Yeah. So like, <laughs> yeah do you I'm get? so used to the younger kids. So that's normally my <laughs> no, that, absolutely. first uh, thought process. But um, I would say probably for, for middle and high school, I, it means so much to kids, like to just find something that they're interested in, like, if they like playing Fortnite, just find some fact about it and talk to them about it. Even if it's just five minutes of your day, um, I think kids, they recognize the effort and they feel important whenever they know that you learned about something that they care about. Um, having a meal with them, just setting aside I know some parents work a lot and so it's not always feasible to have a meal with like your kid or um but at some point like you're going to be with them you know throughout the day and just just five minutes of talking with them making them feel special and important um I I think that is the biggest um factor I think for a lot of kids knowing that they have a safe place at home and knowing that they have it might not be their biological parent but they have someone within the home setting that cares about them mm. and it's taking an interest in them and exactly what, you know, what i hear you say too is just like this these innate things that we think about as humans that we really care about you know they also care about too and so the parent you know like it's innately in us to just want to you know, break bread with other people and just, you know, have mm -hmm. people who take an interest in the things that we like and then talk about things and do things. And so, you know, taking an interest, even though that kid's like 13, you have to do that same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's really powerful. So what I hear is time, 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 yeah. time. Yeah. Even if it's just a little bit of time, that's really important. Awesome. Anything else you'd recommend? Hmm. I guess just I would want parents to know that everyone that's in the education system is there to care for their kid and to help them be successful. So if there's ever any concerns that 
a teacher or administrator or anyone in the school setting comes to a parent with, it's not out of a malicious intent or um, that they don't like their child or that um, they have any kind of, you know, negative feelings towards them. Yeah. Um, it's really because they want to help and they want to try to figure out what they can do in order to help the student be more successful. And so I think just having a open heart <laughs> and just open communication with um, everyone, because we all just really want to be a team and work together um, just in order to help the student be the best person they can be. And I think that's a really important thing too, is the team concept, because, you know, there are times like that, you know, the kid and the teacher just don't click, or maybe the teacher's in a bad place. And yeah. so if your only point of contact in the school is that teacher, man, what a challenge that could be if you're not clicking with that teacher. But if you've got oh, like yeah. people like yourself and the guidance counselor or the school counselors and the principals and the administrators, if you've got this whole team around you, I think a lot of parents may not do that. And so when their kid comes home and they're struggling in school, it's just like, well, it's the teacher's fault. And they're mm -hmm. not even going and talking to these other people that are, could be on their team, but they didn't enlist them on their team. They yeah. just said like, hey, just stay over here. Yeah, man. I think that's really important. And I think too, it might be hard for parents to come and not, I wouldn't say like confront a teacher one-on-one, -on -one, but like call a meeting with like the school team and just be like, I have concerns about this. If there's ever anything um, that a teacher does that, they felt like might have hurt their students' feelings or might not have been handled the way that they thought that it was supposed to be. Um, that's why we have principals and administrators <laughs> that are always yeah. there. And so it's it's best to address it head on than to ignore it and let it fester because typically if there's open communication on both sides, it could be fixed really easily. But if it's not addressed, then that's usually when it becomes a really big problem. Man, great point. I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, and I think too, you know, just kind of talking about. So you've got like time with your kid. You're taking an interest in the things that they're doing. You're spending time with them. You have this team at school. You're doing these things. You know, even from my perspective, I think. And you went back going back to what you said earlier. Just the structure of your life. Like, are they getting good sleep at night? Are they getting good food in their body? Just these really basic things that seem like, oh, well, I, I'm sure I'm doing that. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. Maybe your kids experience it. Maybe not can have so much benefit for their, their academic and social performance if you just turn that video game off a little bit sooner. Yeah. If you just got up a little bit earlier to get that breakfast in, it's not a Pop-Tart. That mm -hmm. kind of stuff just changes the whole dynamic of their mental health and ultimately their academic performance. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I got you. Angela, thank you so much. Thank you for the knowledge. Yeah, thank you for the course. wisdom. <laughs> As you transition back in school, we always ask our, our guests this, you know, things that you're doing for your mental health. As you transition back in, what are what's something that you find yourself doing every day or regularly that's really important for your own mental health? Um, I like to exercise. I would not say that I'm an athletic person by any means, but um, I have a treadmill at my house. And so usually after a hard day or really any day I, that's usually the first thing I do whenever I come home um and within the last two years I've actually transitioned from not watching as much tv as I used to I used to come home and watch 
just like stuff on Netflix and things like that. And um, I've actually been reading a lot more um, this year. I've read 40 books already so far. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so I enjoy that. And I feel like it, it helps me stay more, I don't know. I, I'm not filling my brain with a lot of, you know, TV junk. <laughs> yeah. Or just uh, stuff I enjoy reading. But. Man, that's really impressive. And, and, you know, just hearing, uh, you know, because we're all notorious for not doing the things we recommend to people and you're like doing them. So, man, that's awesome. Well, I, it was a journey, I will say. <laughs> it yeah. did not happen overnight. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I could be better, but that's what I try to do. At least I tell myself I try to do it at least three to four times a week during the work week. So the awesome. exercise part and then reading just whenever I have time. Yeah. Awesome. Angela, thank you so much, girl. The knowledge yeah, is powerful. Thank you.